Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Rain brought you a weekly podcast debunking misinformation and sharing best practices from two of the world's leading infectious disease experts, Drs. Bill Lang and Fred Southwick. The pandemic raised people's awareness of infectious diseases and also their hunger for information about emerging pathogens. So this podcast is looking beyond COVID to update you on the new and the next emerging infectious diseases and what businesses should know. On today's podcast, our host David Lawrence talks with Dr. Bill Lang about what some are calling COVID's final chapter. Bill, um, again, thanks for making time uh, for our audience. Uh, Fred uh, has to admit patients uh, today, so he's unable to be with us, but he'll be back with us uh, for the next broadcast. Uh, so, Bill, just to lead off uh, headline news about what I'll refer to as the CDC uh, lessons learned during the pandemic and, and more than a bit of a mea culpa. Uh, maybe you can bring us up to speed, not simply in terms of what has happened, but what the implications are for uh, sort of the CDC announcements about sort of re-engineering the agency? Well, sure. The CDC has made, in the last week, two major announcements, one regarding recommendations, a very practical level, and the second is regarding the way that they approached the the whole pandemic in the United States. First, the easy one, the, the changes that they made. Um, in some ways, they, they I, I phrase it, they threw in the towel because they basically changed their recommendations to reflect what most people are doing. Um, and the bottom line is that they are no longer requiring a quarantine. Uh, now, remember that a quarantine is what you do if you've been exposed, not what you do if you have the disease. You still need to isolate if you if you actually have COVID, but they are no longer recommending a quarantine for anyone, vaccinated or unvaccinated, although they still do want people to wear a mask until 10 days after the last exposure. And they suggest that you do a test at five days after the exposure. And the reason you do that is so that if it's positive, you can start your isolation sooner rather than waiting till symptoms develop. Um, but beyond that, uh, they say that there is no requirements for uh, for quarantine. Now, that's going to be interesting how that plays out in places like California that have formal reporting and formal quarantine requirements in place, especially from uh, California uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So uh, that's that has that I have seen at least least is is yet to be resolved. California is the only major state that it still has existing major requirements in place. Um, but then beyond that, they just reiterated the existing isolation guidelines. Um, no significant change in the isolation guidelines. And I say that was the probably the, the major thing that they reiterated is that there are no changes. You really do need to isolate. Um, and then you can test after five days. And if you're fever, fever free for five days, um, for I'm sorry, fever free for 24 hours, that you can uh, get out of quarantine. They did indicate to some extent that testing can be optional. If you are completely symptom free, including fever free, after five days, they say you don't need to test. And even at 10 days, you don't, you can go and you don't need to test. You just leave, leave isolation. 
I think most people and most businesses um, are going to be more comfortable with a testing before people re-enter the workforce. Uh, but it, they did drop that specific uh, requirement for it. One other uh, thing that they they stressed is that the six feet for 15 minutes is no longer a a hard and fast rule. It is just one component of assessing either the things that you're doing for protection, you know, keeping people from being in that setting, or when you're assessing exposure. It's just one component. It's one way to decide, well, really, how close were you? But you need to think of it in terms of what was the environment like, highly ventilated environment? Uh, did you have protection, people vaccinated? So it became, it's no longer this if you were within six feet for 15 minutes, you must be quarantined. No, that's not that's not there anymore. It's just a component. Um, so that was the big thing that came out in their issuance last week on changing the, the requirements that really do reflect what people are doing. Then earlier this week, um, Dr. Walensky, the, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, she, she said basically that they botched the response to it. And while they said that they were that much of their response was not as well driven by science as they would hope and that their communications plans were not as good as they should have been. Um, what they did not say was that much of what they did was driven by politics. And that's what most of the commentators are saying is that they would be, they're getting too far away from the science and focusing too much on the, the, the politics and the, the perceived, um, and I don't mean necessarily democratic Republican politics, but it's, they're focusing too much on public opinion and they need to be focused more on the science. Bill, uh, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but obviously, um, look, uh, the pandemic was, in many respects, unprecedented in our, um, in our lifetime. So one would always expect lessons to be learned. And I want to press you a little bit further because there were some institutions that actually did acquit themselves very well. And maybe because the CDC is a government agency, you know, it... Um, it was susceptible to a lot of political pressure. Uh, obviously, there were Senate hearings, congressional hearings, I'm sure calls from the respective White Houses and, and, and various representatives. But institutions, and I don't mean to limit this, I just, you know, Johns Hopkins for one, Stanford, the Mayo Clinic, these, I thought, were excellent sources and were rather transparent in terms of the data throughout this period. And they didn't necessarily present a unified consensus view, but I always had the sense that there were honest brokers in terms of the advice, the information, and the data that they were sharing. And I, I'm sort of wondering whether that might be, you know, as we hopefully don't have another one in our lifetime, but as we prepare for another one, whether there might be some lessons about the leadership that came out of institutions such as Stanford and Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic? Well, to me, I think what the biggest thing that I take is when I was when I would go through this and the data that I'd present here and in, in other in other fora, um, I went to many sources for data. And 
those institutions such as the ones that you listed, um, I, I'll, I could add to that uh, public, public health agencies of Canada and England and um, University of Washington. Um, they all had excellent data. They also did analysis. They did analysis that I did not always agree with. But the data, they just fairly, in a very fair manner, presented just here, here are the facts. And then they presented analysis. And analysis is... There, there's even in science analysis is to some extent opinion and that's fine but present your opinion all you want i just want to see I, I like it when organizations present the data independent of the opinion or the analysis um, and that's what in general um, activities like um, the, the Johns Hopkins and then some of the consolidators also the New York Times the Washington Post did an excellent job of consolidating the data without going through putting a whole lot of opinion with it in fact they had some of the most I'll call it accessible means of understanding the data I did the Atlantic the New Yorker um, and as you mentioned the Times the Washington Post even what Wired magazine did a, I thought a great job curating and synthesizing the data. Far As did Reuter, Reuters, Reuters did on the yep, international, I, on a national basis. The Economist, Bloomberg. Uh, look, I feel like it's one of these uh, Oscar award presentations where someone's standing up and wants to make sure they acknowledge everyone. <laughs> well, but David, but they, what I, would, yeah. I do want to make one one big observation here. You notice that both of us have been talking in the past tense. Um, and this is the first time, I think, in the in in this pandemic epidemic series of linked regional epidemics, as I used to say, um, that we are thinking of it more in the past tense. It's not over yet. I mean, there's there something could still happen, but in the absence of a new variant, this retrospective, as you put it, uh, it was less in judgment on, you know, and I, I'm glad you said this for the audience. Because uh, the podcast is going to morph into uh, the new and the next and giving people a forward-looking view of what else uh, might be on the horizon and how to think about it uh, from a standpoint of managing uh, safety and security and medical risk. Um, but our conversation obviously is prompted. The head of the CDC has acknowledged um, that some things did not go right. And... Um, I think one of the lessons, and I wanted to get your view on this, Bill, there is declining uh, trust amongst the public in, in terms of our government institutions. But I, I actually took away from the CDC's acknowledgement that they were recognizing that there was a, a, a significant gulf between the public's ability to trust the CDC and what they had been saying and the need to address that. I think the biggest thing is transparency. Is it, it gets it's similar to what I was saying about these other institutions. The ones that developed the most trust were the ones that were transparent. Um, the problem with the government is that the government has to make take action, not just express opinion, but go beyond just expressing opinion to taking action. Uh, but still, in the day of the internet, where the data is out there and you can find it. Um, CDC's compilation of the data must be the best that there is. Um, and and the data that they are putting forward must be the most trusted. There is a, a phenomenon in medicine, and I forgive me, I forget the type of bias. There's a, there's a name for the, 
a specific name for the type of bias, but it's when you determine the diagnosis and the treatment plan for a patient. What tends to happen, and this is very, very well described, is once you've made, once a physician has made that determination, then they tend to see all of the additional clinical data that is coming in, in that light. So they overweight things that support their opinion and they underweight things that undermine their opinion. Usually that works out fine, but that can that can sometimes be very much to the patient's detriment. And I think what we see here is the nation's physician, the CDC, in, in some occasions, they made up their mind as to what the treatment was going to be, what policy decisions they were going to they were going to put forward, and they underweighted data that did not necessarily support their decision, and they overweighted data that did rubber stamp their decision. And I think that that what CDC needs to have in the future is a um, like the military does, where you have the the red team that is that is going against whatever the orthodoxy is. Um, you need to have the same thing in the CDC, kind of an ombudsman who's going, who's just always asking the opposite question. Um, that that would be my my major projection. The other thing that the CDC did say is that they need resources. Well, of course, any government agency always says they need more resources, but. Back um, when I was in government, uh, was during the pandemic flu, and I actually remember being in meetings at CDC where some fairly senior leaders said, "You know, I don't think we're going to have a pandemic flu, but this is the only opportunity. This threat, which was a true threat, this threat is the only opportunity that we are going to plead our case to be ready for the next major pandemic." And much of the work that was done there did, in fact, help us. Here we know there were missteps, but but there were many things done correctly too. You never think about the things that were done right. The only things, only the things that were done wrong, get the uh, publicity. So um, I think that this does need to be a learning experience, and we need to be ready that we can that we can fight the the next uh, pandemic because we know that there's gonna there's always gonna be another one. There's always another one coming down the road. Um, I I just I, maybe I'm going a little off the reservation here, but my my graduation speaker at West Point was Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense. And he said at the time, this was 1983, he said, you know, we are probably not going to have to fight another major war in your careers. But the only way that we will not have to fight that war is if we are always ready at a moment's notice to fight the war. And I think some, that sometimes that to a certain extent applies here that we can prevent having a major pandemic that disrupts life the way that COVID has. But the only way that we can do that is if we are always ready at a moment's notice to respond to that epidemic. And unfortunately, that's being always ready is not a cheap proposition. Not only not a cheap proposition, but the second leg of uh, pandemics or the, th uh, the psychological we seemed um, uniquely equipped not to not to want to prepare or to, if we are preparing, we like to see the results of that uh, preparation because the potential for a global pandemic, as we have discussed previously in this podcast, were, you know, the, the warnings were decades in the making by very credible sources, not just in the medical community, but the intel community as well. And yet, you know, wasn't heated, you know. 
Um, I have two more quick, very quick things on COVID, and that's that yesterday or Wednesday, the White House said that the, the new bivalent booster will be available in, quote, a few short weeks. And they also said that they think that it's every it's going to be available to every American over the age of 12. So they don't think there is going to be a, a risk-based prioritization out the gate. Now, the re, much of the reasoning behind that, they didn't say this, this is my analysis, is that um, the uptake on Novavax has been significantly lower than expected. A third of a million doses have been uh, distributed around the U.S. 10,000 doses have been administered. So the fact that we will have a newer, faster, better vaccine um, in a few short weeks doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a huge uptake on it. Well, that's actually uh, important and significant. And uh, just so as we begin to morph into the little bit of the, the new and the next, uh, I know you've been tracking both the reports around polio uh, as well as the um, monkeypox virus. What can you update us about uh, both those uh, situations? Sure. So polio, periodic polio outbreaks, not going to call it an epidemic, but just outbreaks are not unusual because there are populations in the United States, um, congregated populations in the United States that uh, do not get vaccinated. And that's all it takes. You have, if you have a, a community that doesn't get vaccinated, uh, then it's very easy. You get a couple of cases and that it takes off like wildfire through that community. And um, the, 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 some of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York are a prototype of that, that they do not get polio vaccinations. And so periodically there is going to be a, a polio outbreak in those communities. This is not the first time. It won't be the last time. Um, polio does exist. Um, if, you get if you're vaccinated, as most people are, it's not something that you have to worry about. So this is not a major public health issue. I mean, any, anytime any community is at risk, it's a public health issue. But this is not a major that people need to be worried about um, unless you happen to be someone who has chosen not to be vaccinated or not to have your children vaccinated. In that situation, yeah, you should worry. As you have uh, followed the monkey pox, you know, spread, and uh, I think New York City finally has acknowledged they may have sufficient vaccines uh, to administer but um, your thoughts around how to think about that. Yeah, so one of the key things is that the data, it looks like the epidemic has peaked, probably peaked the first week in August. You never want to call a peak based on one on on one week. But when you, you look at the, the curve and you look at the history of the epidemic, um, you know, most epidemics peak about six to eight weeks into them. Um, and that's right where we are now, right at about about eight weeks into this. And um, it's it looks when you look at the epidemic curve, the number of cases per day, it it looks like it's turning around this time next week. We'll pretty much be able to say for sure. But the the other big thing, um, there were three studies that came out in in major journals, the New England Journal, uh, Lancet and the British Medical Journal, all three of which indicated that the general public probably does not need to be worrying about this because it is um, not, it's not just simple skin to skin transmission. Uh, that is the primary vector. Even if you, even if you have contact with a, a, a blister, you're probably, 
not going to get that's not enough to get you infected um but that is it's the certain characteristics of the specifically sexual kinds of contacts among certain communities um that do facilitate transmission of the virus and therefore it's it is not a threat to the public in general but all of that's that's a politically difficult statement to make um, in many in many settings. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but the, probably the biggest thing is that this does appear to have peaked. We do know how to prevent it. It's just unfortunate that that prevention is primarily um, it's primarily not vaccination. Um, it's primarily behavioral, and so it's an educational intervention that we need to be taking. Bill, as always, uh, thanks for your insights. Uh, the update. Uh, we're going to have uh, a number of very, very interesting topics to discuss with you and uh, Fred uh, next time as um, we've been canvassing to see what uh, some of the leading scientists and uh, clinicians and doctors uh, are worried about, advising about, uh, not alarmists, but just, uh, as you say, realistic preparation uh, for what might be uh, next on the horizon. With that said, Bill, thanks again, uh, as always. And, uh, you know, I know you have a number of patients you have to respond to uh, this afternoon. So truly appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents. David Lawrence is the founder of RAIN. RAIN is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn more about RAIN's market-leading risk intelligent products at rainnetwork.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening. 